digital mastery also comes with the second aspect, which is leadership, mm. right? which is that it's not good enough for you to be smart and for you to hire all the smart people. Can you create a vision, take this technology and actually solve a problem, create a vision for this and energize the people to support you right. and secure trust from investors and other people to invest in you. And now that's the, that's just the first part, but execute flawlessly. Yeah. You know? Yes. you execute flawlessly, then you deal with problems that come along the way and you, you support your team. You're there when they need you. So yeah. that's digital. So a holistic and responsible approach to product and market development through digital mastery. Hello, welcome to Tiny Dragon, where we dive deep into tech startups mastering product market fit, even in the most unfamiliar markets. I'm your host, Elaine. Join us as we dive deep into the heart of tech startups, uncovering the secrets of how tech startups found their product market fit, turning complex insights into actionable strategies for entrepreneurs and tech enthusiasts alike. Okay, welcome. So thank you for coming to the Tiny Dragon podcast. Today we have a special guest, Kaushnik Palalamari. And uh, he just uh, conducted a successful exit of his company, uh, Winstrom, right? So why don't I uh, let uh, him uh, introduce his company and his uh, his journey on uh, this company's product market fit and also expanding to other markets. Yes. Okay. Thank you very much, Elaine. Um, again, my name is Kaushik Philadamari and thank you for inviting me. I'm truly honored to be here to share my, my experience with the startup. My technology startup called uh, Smartify Inc. got acquired by Wistron Corporation. So now it's Wistron. And Smartify Inc. was a technology company based out of the United States, an American company, got acquired by a Taiwanese company called Wistron Corporation. So it was an international acquisition. And the major synergy was that Smartify uh, was a software company focused on edge computing at that time, a pioneer of fog and edge computing paradigm in 2015. And uh, Wistron was an ease and electronics manufacturing company. They pretty much manufacture everything that's electronic. And so the hardware plus software synergy uh, was uh, recognized and we got acquired. And so I'm part of uh, this new company. Uh, which got acquired during the COVID period and uh, part of this new company as a strategy advisor, helping the company with the uh, integration of this newly acquired entity, uh, as well as helping the company with a strategic direction for this decade, leveraging emerging technologies like 5G and edge computing AI to transform <laughs> the electronics manufacturing industry. So quickly, okay. that's my position and okay. new role. Can you give us a little bit more specific example about the smart manufacturing so that like your mom would understand? <laughs> yes. So manufacturing typically involves any manufacturing uh, involves several stages and specific to electronics manufacturing here. You would, they manufacture electronic devices like smartphones, tablets, Laptops, they're one of the largest laptop manufacturers in the world. In fact, I think about 90% of 
a world's laptops are manufactured there. Right. They bring in all the components from various countries and various suppliers into their warehouse and start assembling them. There are different assembly lines based on the product, assembling them and then putting it into a storage area so that they can go and ship it to the customer. Mm. Right? Typically, okay. in a, that is the very simple process. But when you start putting technology implementation, when you, when you start applying technology to it, then you're talking about making the manufacturing process smarter mm-hmm. using the internet connectivity or intranet connectivity, the network technologies, using some advanced AI technologies. Uh, for example, one of the challenges we would have is that there may be a lot of defects because um, the manufacturing is done at high speed and suddenly there may be some defects. And so when goods are produced, you'll have to inspect them first. So we may use AI to, mm-hmm. with a camera, use AI to take an image of the product and then recognize if there's a defect or not, and then try to, we don't want to put that into the market, right? So using technology to accelerate production process, to improve the quality of the production process, to improve cost efficiencies so that we could deliver the goods to the customer at an affordable price and also make a good profit margin. Ah, okay. So it's to streamline everything and make it like cutting costs and all that, right? Okay. And improving quality and improving speed. I see, I see. Okay, great. So how did you get into this industry? What's the backstory of all this? Yeah, a very interesting question. I have worked for many industries in my career, and I think that's one of the unique things about my journey. Uh, I worked for uh, many industries like technology industry, airline industry, telecom industry, agribusiness industry, and also food, CPG manufacturing industry, and now electronics manufacturing. Mm. Uh, I've gained a lot of experience across all these other industries and finally landed with Vistron because of the acquisition. Vistron primarily produced hardware Mm. and they were trying to expand uh, diversity. Uh, The electronics manufacturing industry is a highly competitive industry based in Taiwan. Taiwan is a leader in the world for electronics manufacturing and semiconductor. But over the last 10, 15 years or so, a lot of new players came in, especially many players in the Asian countries, from the Asian continent. And that challenged the traditional environment, the traditional industry. And so the prices went down and the margins went down. So typically the margins are for a manufacturing company are below 1%. Mm, I'm talking about... A net profit, rather. Net right, profit right. is below. Whereas the industries, other industries like software industry and solutions industry, their margins are anywhere between 35% to 80% or more. Mm. So if Wistron could diversify, so in addition to manufacturing hardware for the big names, you talk about Google and Apple and Amazon and Facebook, you, any the top, the big five are customers of Wistron. And there are many other companies across the world. And it's very competitive, right? But they wanted to diversify and follow the, ride the way industry trend. And Mm -hmm. what that means is that as things got more complex uh, and companies are asking for a solution rather than a product, Mm -hmm. a company just want 
hardware. Sometimes they want hardware plus software plus service plus connectivity. Right. Right. So you, no one company can do it all. all mm -hmm. They can only do it through partnerships. Right. Wistron was exploring opportunities to diversify beyond hardware. And in many ways, one of the ways they were doing that was to invest in high tech startup uh, companies. And right. they invest in AI, they invest in sustainable energy, they invest in other technologies. And one of them was edge computing, Smartify, our company. Right. And um, so the idea was to bundle the hardware with software plus other solutions and offer that to the customers at a better price, mm. offer a value, and therefore you can extract more value and improve the profit, the net profits beyond 1%. And that was the idea. And, and so we were one of the lucky ones to be, to have Wistron as a strategic investor, one of the best strategic investors any startup uh, company could have. And there was perfect synergy because our software was being built for smartphones. It was being built for routers and potentially other devices. And they built smartphones and they built routers. And, and so there was a perfect synergy. Uh, there. Mm. Okay. So how did you find product market fit? Like, how did you know the market wanted? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you, when you launch a product, okay, when you say product market fit, it means that you have identified a great market where your product can be successful because it satisfies the needs of the market. Yes. That's by definition. And we, when we launch a product, we need to make sure that the product is desirable in the market and it is feasible for us technically and in, in other ways, feasible for us to make it happen and successful in the market. And it's viable. That means that there's enough business that the investment we put in gets returns. These are the fundamentals of product market fit. So in, in our case, what happened was that it was a different direction. It came from a different direction. We partnered with Professor uh, Junshin Zhang from, at the time, Arizona State University and uh, Professor Mung Chan uh, from Princeton University. They were working together on a patentable technology. And uh, 97%, 99% or 98% of patents that were produced by the universities or by the industry they're always shelved. They're, mm. they're just shelved. Just shelved. Uh, um, so there was an opportunity because of my past partnership experience with the universities. Every time I was in a company, whether in the United States or Asia or Africa, I always partnered with uh, some of the top leading in, institutions, uh, universities, so that I could get some new technologies and start implementing them for a differentiated product in the market. So in the process, I created a connection with the professors. And at some point in time, they had a patentable idea, which mm -hmm. was going to be in the shelf. But they identified me as a person who could potentially look for a use case or a, where, an opportunity where this product could be commercialized and monetized. And at the time, of course, the biggest part of my career was at Verizon. I spent about 14 years mm -hmm. at Verizon. And then in the United States. And then from there, I moved to Asia, where I spent a little more than two and a half years, or three years, less than three years in that market for a different company. And then I moved to Africa 
for a complete different industry, agri business, agro processing and the manufacturing, food manufacturing industry, because I had experience across different geographies yeah. and different industries. Uh, I was tapped by the professors to evaluate this patentable idea. A patent was filed, a patent pending, to say, hey, is there an opportunity? Is there an opportunity for this where we could satisfy a need? So this was related to a network technology okay. uh, where it would boost your speed. And then I evaluated the U.S. market where U.S. has a better infrastructure. Uh, I evaluated uh, other markets. I was very familiar with other markets and how to take a product in other markets. So I, I quickly did a, an environmental scan and within a, a few weeks came up with an opportunity where this research idea could be applied and it could solve the needs of the people. So I, I was searching for pain points. You know, yeah. what are the pain points that need to be solved? And specifically pain points related to network. And at that point in time, about 80% of the world still did not have proper network infrastructure compared to the advanced economies like America and in some European countries. And so we found that there was a global opportunity for this. But even within America, you had uh, about 30% networks are in the rural areas where there are network issues. Um, and it was all about, for a consumer, you're watching video and it starts buffering. For an enterprise customer, you're driving and then there's no connectivity and therefore you cannot track the trucks on, mm -hmm. on the go or uh, you cannot finish an electronic transaction. Pretty much looked around the world, found that, there was a problem at the time, and there still is a problem. And then identified how big was the problem in every geography, and uh, then came up with a strategy to launch uh, a product out of this technology idea. And uh, then we decided that in some geographies, uh, there was a bigger need, a pain point, there was a bigger need. And so we targeted some of those geographies first, and then slowly, so we launched our first product in Asia and then slowly moved back to North America oh. and, and then deployed across the world. So and, when you think you found, so was it through talking to people, researching on the Is it repeatable? Yeah. The first thing is that we, yeah, it was uh, talking to people and a few other things and there is a repeatable process for us. You know? uh, first of all, we identify a pain point and and where is the impact, the negative impact, the biggest? Second, secondly, we think about, okay, how can we use a technology to address that pain point? Mm -hmm. And technology cannot directly be used. It has to be converted into a product or a platform that can be delivered through some mechanism. And for consumers, maybe it could be a mobile phone. For businesses, it could be a router or, a, or some other mechanism like a point of sale system. And then we evaluated desirability. Right. The first yeah. thing is uh, who desires this and who desires the most. Yeah. And then, then there, the second question is feasibility. Right. Sometimes you build something for a target market, but you it cannot, let's say, a consumer market, but you cannot directly take it to a business market. You have to change it for the business market. The fundamental technology may remain the same, but how you package it for business is different, and it may be on a different device. So we evaluate all these different opportunities to launch. And mm. figure out that which one is feasible, more feasible, easier to build, so that we can go to market faster. Okay, that's a, that's okay. second thing. And 
Of course, then comes viability, which is uh, can we make money? How soon can we make money? Because investors, they are they are really anxious about that. That's one of yeah. the biggest decisions they make. So we do that analysis first. But what we also did was, so that based on that analysis, there is uh, there's a secondary research. We pull in a lot of reports from the internet now. Thank God in the last one or two decades, we, we had the internet where we can pull information. But we also did some primary research where we're a startup. So we cannot afford to pay large companies, but we had a network. So part of one of the most important things in a startup is having a good set of advisors and board members. Mm-hmm. They okay. would have connections. So through those connections, we identified about 25 industry leaders okay. to validate our hypothesis across the world. So we had this hypothesis that, hey, there is this technology that's patented, patent, file, patent pending. That means nobody else did it mm. the way this technology was built. Nobody else in the world did it. That means that there is no benchmark. We would be doing it for the first time, right? So how do you know that it is a, it is going to be successful? Mm. So you must, a lot of times people say that, hey, you must be like Steve Jobs who goes by with a gut feeling. You don't need to necessarily talk to People, you must decide what the users want and then go launch it, right? That's also a good approach, but not everybody becomes successful with that approach, right? Few companies have been successful with that approach, but 99% of startups fail. Yeah, I think we should always deal with it. We, we, should have, we should be cautious how we go. We also, in addition to our, our gut and our experience, because having experience across different geographies and different industries, we have a gut feeling about this, but we talk to 25 people who are experienced, uh, yeah. outsiders, unbiased people, and we created, we developed a hypothesis about how this patentable technology can solve some problems for different markets and different users, different segments. And we got their feedback. And many of them said, hey, it's interesting, but be cautious about this. So we got so much of information from that. So I think mm-hmm. that was very yeah. Actually, in our industry, we call that expert interviews. <laughs> Basically, you, you interview like people who are cutting edge leaders in the sector, and then you talk to them. Yeah. Yes. And so when you say, so did you set up this board of advisors or were there just, just loose connections? We had a formal set of board, advisory board. Okay. I think it's good to have it formalized because then there are some boundaries and there is some, we have to create a meaningful relationship with uh-huh. them or other means. And and we also need to ensure that we pick the right people at the right stage. Yes. Okay. Uh, so yes, we did. Some of the advisors came through our own founders, myself and my my two co-founders, distinguished professors and entrepreneurs, yeah. and entrepreneurs as well. So, so there may be some connections from there. So we did create a formal board uh-huh. of advice through those and what was the did are they rewarded with shares or is this voluntary or like how was the setup yeah we uh, definitely made sure that we rewarded them through uh, an equity percentage within the company uh, okay. so they would uh, feel ownership uh, right. Okay. And so in a startup company, that's pretty typical because we we try to use every dollar cash very carefully. And and um, but if there is an opportunity to 
offer equity in yeah. exchange of some valuable advice. That's what we preferred to do. And uh, that's what we did. I see. Would you mind sharing around what percentage or is there a rule of thumb for people to learn how what they should do? Yeah. yeah. I would say that it ranges from decent number on the a decent number is somewhere between 0.25% to 0.5%. Uh, okay. I see. Uh, of the company, the ownership of the company. 0.25% to 0.5. And so if you average it, it's 0.33. Oh, okay. I see. Area. And if you take 0.33, that means that for 1% of ownership in the company, you may be able to tap into three advisors. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and, and it depends. And a lot of advisors have been exceptional because they want to mentor us, they want to provide value and they're so caring. And for them, typically money or the shares, that has never been the issue. Okay. Successful. And they are just pleased that we want to reward them. And so that's pretty, pretty difficult. Yeah. Some who may end up with other numbers because generally what happens is that it's good to get advisors that you know or directly or somebody that you trust knows. I think yes. that kind of relationship is the best relationship because you get probably the best outcome. Because I have also seen other situations where there are companies where, hey, we are experts in finding you a board advisor role and a lot of people sign up for it. And then sometimes people may demand a higher number and th- things like that. Oh, I, I will not be your advisor until I get 5% of the company, things like that. So all those things happen and it's hard for a startup company to sustain yeah. that. Okay. But yeah, typically known people. So it's the relationship between your core team and the advisors a one-on-one relationship or do you meet as a whole group, like a board of advisors and on Zoom meeting or physically? Yeah, every, yeah. yeah. So it's a combination. All of- okay. It's all about okay. because every advisor, there was no standard rule that applied to everybody. We were very accommodative and they were accommodative as well. It is these people are distinguished and they are busy and sometimes it's hard to get people together uh, at the same time. Right? So typically we could have a quarterly advisory board meeting. Mm-hmm. Okay. Where everybody could be physical or many people physical and many people remote. Right. And uh, that could be set up with quarterly would have. But there were some advisors that we were meeting once or twice a week. Oh, you know, okay. Close by. And either they would stop by or we would go and meet for a coffee. And they were, and during certain periods of time, there were advisors we leaned on uh, for a longer time and uh, more frequently. And then once that phase was over, then maybe other advisors. Mm-hmm. And, and with some advisors, we just met once a month. With some advisors, we may not meet them until the quarter, but it all depends upon the kind of advisor. Because why do you need an advisor? You need an advisor, first of all, number one, to maybe validate what you're doing and uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that, right. that the team has from a subject matter expertise perspective, right? Okay. But there are advisors that have great connections to potential customers, potential investors. Yeah. Right? And yeah. their role is to help us with those connections. connections. We may not need them on a day-to-day basis. But then when you're fundraising those three months, we may deal with them. They may end up joining us with the investor calls. I think that it is varied 
and it is very customized and tailored to every advisor and it is also based on situation it is situational but uh -huh. we do offer when we engage in a relationship the way we do that is that we we give them an equity percentage and we it would typically be a, a three year period three, three year, year. Mm. so that so this percentage that we offer would vest within those three years uh -huh. and uh, sometimes what happens is that there are some advisors who are happy to give us strategic when we have a, a strategy meeting for the next two two years we had some advisors who actually came and facilitated a three day strategy meeting with us and spent eight hours a day and rolled up the sleeves and did a whiteboarding session and facilitation of strategy is a it's not easy right yes. if advisor has that expertise then they bring that to the table mm -hmm. there are some advisors who actually introduced us to an investor and that investor actually invested in our company so maybe we may end up rewarding that advisor differently on okay. about the particular range that we may offer uh, we may actually uh, give a finder's fee or we may, but none of this is in the contract with them it's more like it, it's an appreciation that we, oh. you know because we want them so yes uh, so different advisors do different things and uh, we try to show our gratitude in different ways right. uh, fair to everyone across the board and it's there's harmony yes one thing i notice is you're a very humble person <laughs> yeah and i think that also helps attract people who want to help you right yeah, yeah. <laughs> i've been very thankful uh for the the, the network i have and uh, people's willingness to help us uh, i also believe that my personality is basically influenced by my background the way my parents raised me i i thank them a lot for this i'm indebted to them and all the experiences that i've had across the world i think that shapes the personality too because when you talk about product and product market fit yeah assume that you have a good market where the product has a need to be satisfied and fulfilled right, right? but then you have to launch it in that market Right, mm. the cultures are so different that because I had an advantage of living in all these countries and doing something in these countries, and launching things in those countries, I think I had an advantage. Because yeah. uh, otherwise, if people who did not have that that experience, and if you're sitting in one country and trying to launch something in another country, mm. it's a hard thing to, yeah. to do. But I, I was almost like an insider in every one of these places, and. And why I kind of highlight maybe my personality is because your personality changes and molds itself based on the environment. It's a very big role. And patience is very big, I think, important, especially for a startup. Because yeah. um, in America, let's say everything is fast, everything is organized, internet speeds are high. Let's say you go to another country, then you're always buffering or you're waiting in long lines. And then it, the, you acquire some new skills there you develop yeah. your personality based on that and hmm. some countries you go there and you realize hey we are so lucky in this country because 80 percent of the world doesn't have uh, is not that fortunate and yeah. so then you can see things in front of you and you begin to appreciate things that we have that most people yeah. don't have i think it has an influence in how you deal with people also and how you start thank being thankful for what you have and so if you say I'm humble and all that, I think it was influenced by my my environments. 
Yeah. Okay. So in, in terms of the advice, as you also mentioned, picking the right people, how do you decide that? How do you know? Yeah. Any, yeah. Uh, any guiding principles you have in mind? What, what I mean by that is sometimes you're in a startup and you have founders and you may, between me and my partners, right? All the founders together, they may know some people. Mm. They are, they were maybe your your ex-boss or your your professor for during your college. And so I have seen companies ending up choosing people as advisors just because they're grateful to somebody from the past for some other reason. And hey, let's do this together. And that's a noble thing, noble thought. But with that, what may happen sometimes is that you may never have worked with those people in this new environment. And then suddenly you start realizing that, hey, they're an advisor, they're here for three years and you've already given them equity. And really I'm not getting anything out of that. It's hard for us to even think. And because all these people are distinguished people and we don't want to put any advisor in a situation where we think that they are not providing value, but it's hard for us to communicate that. And it's an awkward situation. So, right. so it be very, it's, it's not an emotional decision. It has to be a decision based on what value they're going to bring to this company. At uh-huh. Today, who do we need? And two years later, who do we need? Because what happens as soon as some advisors are maybe two years, uh, they'll be here for two years, they'll be here for three years, years there are those advisors who will be just here for short term like three months mm-hmm. so the structure will be different because after that they also don't have time right so what happens is that by the time you finish your two or three years you need to start thinking about okay look i am in the initial stage i already have created a market now it's all about scaling and expansion now mm-hmm. who can we tap into during that phase and during the scaling phase now this time we are not going to raise half a million dollars or a one or two million dollars, we want to raise $50 million. I think that the advisors have to be trusted, but you as a founder and as an executive of this startup, we have to make the right decision for this company mm. and fair to this company. And we have to spend every dollar that other investors have invested in it in the right manner. So choosing the right advisor, leaving emotions aside, think about, you know, at this stage, I, I want to build a product. So I would love to see somebody who is an expert in network technology, maybe, or who has been in the telecom industry or who has been in the device industry working with network technologies. Mm-hmm. And let's get that person uh, to validate and to maybe ro- help us roll our sleeves and start building this up. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, so that's one example. Another uh, example could be that even before we start the company, sometimes you tap into people who are not officially advisors, but they end up connecting to investors and then investors started start to invest in your company. And so they may end up becoming your advisors because through that process, you want to appreciate them, but also they may bring some other elements to the table. They may, sometimes what happens is when an investor invests in you and it happens through a trusted connection, a mutual trust, they also feel good that this advisor is part of the company or the, that mm-hmm. person advisor because they feel good that we are getting the right advice from a trusted person. 
So it's, it comes in all shapes and sizes. So fundamentally, we need to get somebody who will provide value. Mm-hmm. This, and when the landscape changes next year, because now you're in a different phase, who are the advisors that will be valuable that year? Right. And sometimes you need to even renew your advisor because you, you, you finished three years and then you want three more years. Mm-hmm. And some advisors may roll off. Some advisors may get extended. And uh, bottom line is make sure that they yeah. are provided. Yeah. I feel you're the perfect hybrid of East and West because you have the humbleness of the East, but also the very logical and not very emotional way of decision-making to find the right person at the right time for your company, right? That's a compliment for me. And you know what? That's what I think uh, I'm blessed with. Because of this multicultural background and uh, Mm -hmm. experience multiple environments, I think that I can do two things. One is mold myself based on situation, situational leadership. But second is converge these concepts together and make a a decision uh, that's an informed decision and that's more powerful. Yes, yes. Dotting the I's and crossing the T's. um, So we can maximize the success. So I'm thankful for your compliment. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Because I feel like sometimes coming from Asia, we know... There's a lot of family businesses, like we relatives. It's because of who you know, but not because who provides the best value. But then sometimes in the West, I also feel the opposite, where every single time companies change vendors, there's no relationship <laughs> at all, right? So, and it's very cold in that sense, right? So this seems to be a perfect combination <laughs> of, of both sides of the cultures. Yeah. Okay. Since you have so many experiences in different parts of the world, now you're in New York, and then you're from India originally by by, by your cultural roots, you mentioned, roots. and then how did you get to sell your company to a Taiwanese company? What was the, and Africa you mentioned, right? Like how? Yeah, I was born in India, and when I was very small, once I was very small, we migrated to Africa because my parents uh, lived in Africa for many decades and uh, my, my, my father worked there uh, to help build new technologies and infrastructure mm. strategies for so many countries in Africa, across Africa. So my schooling was all done in Africa. And then as a teenager, I came to the United States. Most people from Africa go to the United Kingdom because oh. Africa previously colonized by the United Kingdom. So there's a natural kind of an affinity association there. I was one of those very few or the only persons at that time to move to the United States and and got into this computer technology field. And so pretty much I was, I lived outside of India all my life. Mm. But I wanted to go back uh, and experience those cultures. And I was very fortunate without any effort from my side they were based on my experience and my tenure at Verizon. Uh, somehow, other people came to know about me and Verizon, and then they called me to find out if I would be interested for an opportunity in India with one of the largest telecom companies at the time, Reliance. And and so I went there because I grew up. I, I was born there, but my my wife was also from India. And so we thought that, hey, let's move as a family to uh, experience India because I've never, I had never experienced India. One thing is, but living there and doing things there. So that, that was one experience. And then 
moving to Africa in a very similar way and unexpectedly. And I grew up in Africa. So my family, my kids, they experienced India and Africa, but they're all Americans. So they also got a great exposure. How Taiwan happened was that, again, we're all multicultural. So the, my co-founders, the professors from Princeton and Arizona, they're also multicultural. So through a mutual connection, they had a very strong connection to Wistron, one of the companies who invested in, in us, uh. in our company, and that happened to be a Taiwanese company. And when you're looking for investors, what happens is that you can't just go and Google on investors and start showing, presenting to them, right? Because every investor has certain desires, needs, preferences. There are investors who like to invest in this kind of technology or this kind of industry or this kind of geography, right? That's one thing. Second thing is there are different kinds of investors. There are strategic investors mm. and um, venture capital firms. There are uh, angel investors and, and possibly other kinds of investors. Why we decided not to go for a VC at an early stage, but to go to angel investors and strategic uh, investors was because we wanted an investor that would work with us to, to make this company successful. Mm. That would have energy with us in such a way that they would also become interested in the success and potentially integrating and collaborating on a, a solution together. And right. I think uh, we were looking for that. And so the, a strategic investor typically has an established uh, operation mm. and it may complement what we do. And whatever we do, if we are successful, right? they could benefit from that and they could integrate it and we could together sell it and they can uh -huh. amplify our success. Okay, And that, that is one. Second thing is strategic investors, I believe in from my experience are very patient mm. because there are investors who want to invest and they want to see, hey, by in, within a year, I want to return. And you know what? 99.9999% of the time, when we go and pitch to investors and say, this is what we're going to do, in an area where we don't have a benchmark to compare how long it would take for somebody to do this. Okay. And we would estimate and it will take six months, but 99.9999%, you miss the target timelines that you know you miss the targets. So six months, it may take one year. Uh, it may, a lot of other things happen that you may never envision at the beginning. So what happens is you get an investor and then you sell this and then some milestones are not achieved then you may get into trouble because some of these investors, and again, is their right that uh, they want a return. We promise return within a year or a year and a half, and it's not happening. And suddenly, then they would get concerned and they will say, look, we don't approve this. We don't approve that. Here's the direction you need to go from now onwards. You know what? I think the CEO has a different mindset. So let's bring a new CEO. Things like that. Yeah. So those things happen. And again, I'm not pointing at anybody here, what I'm saying is there were different kinds of investors. Yes. So we must get at an early stage of the company, we must get a, a, maybe angel investors, but a combination of angel plus a strategic investor. Yeah. like with, And we were so lucky because at the time when they built the technology, we were initially building it for consumers where we had a smartphone. We could just download that software into the smartphone. But then but with the smartphone, we did not know how to monetize it yet because uh, consumers want all apps free, right? They don't want to pay for apps. But the technology was so powerful, but they want it free. But along the 
uh, on the along the path, we found that some business customers, like industrial customers, liked our technology. They said, we like it, but we want to apply it to our security industry or our public safety industry in a commercial environment. And, and they would pay us a monthly fee for it. And mm-hmm. so what happened? We actually pivoted. Within ah. three months, many startups, people pivot. Right? right? You were planning to do one thing, you got the money. Suddenly you realize that either you get into a glitch or you get into a situation where there's another opportunity that surfaced and it will take us to the promised land faster because yeah. you can see revenue generation. And mm-hmm. so we did pivot. But with pivot comes the positives and negatives. Pivoting, we now have a strategy to make money out of this yeah. technology. Okay, yeah. it's tangible, and we also have an opportunity. Once we do it for this kind of a customer, now we can scale across. So there were there was more clarity. But with pivoting, what happens is you only raised X amount of money for this particular product for consumers. But industrial, you need now twice the money, but you only. Uh, mm. And so you're burning the money faster and you get into that. And the other thing that we ran into was that with a smartphone, you can download anybody that has a smartphone, you can download it. Okay. But for industrial applications, they need a router. Mm. And uh, routers are all not as established in terms of downloading applications. Like, uh, like they don't have an ecosystem like a smartphone app ecosystem. Okay, yeah. They don't never had at the time at least. So what happened was we never found a router in the market that where we could just download it and then ship it to the customer. We had to create a router oh. that would be competing because the router had to be specialized. There was no router in the industry that that would suit that that would be capable. So we wanted to go and build a router then. Okay, it would yeah. cost more money. Then when we go to manufacturers are not interested to talk to a startup company because they don't want to build hundred routers. The, the first question is million routers, at least 10,000 routers, because every time they manufacture, they have a batch for efficiency, right? Yeah. So we run into a problem where the customer wants to pay for this, but there's no router. So you see, Wistron came to rescue because Wistron, they manufacture routers. Oh. Although they do manufacture in the millions. Okay. okay small companies like 100 routers. They stepped in and said, hey, this is great progress. You have a customer that you want to make money, revenues, and it's a great industry. And this, you don't, because they're on our board, they sit on our board. Mm. The board, don't worry, we will step in and we, first, we will have one of our manufacturing facilities to manufacture your device. You need what, 200, 300, the initial round? No problem. We typically manufacture 10,000, but for you, we'll do this. Okay, mm. that's one. Second thing they did was, oh, typically what happens is in a manufacturing environment, electronic manufacturing, you have to pay money in advance. Nobody will manufacture and deliver to you and then take money. They want you to ship the money, transfer the money first. Yes. You didn't have that money. Yeah. So don't, don't worry, we'll give you credit. Oh, okay. Overnight, within shortest period of time, three months, okay, we we manufact, we got the routers manufactured. Mm-hmm. Okay rapidly and since they were on the board they were able to accelerate the process and they were able to give us access to every person so that uh, a typical nine month process is uh, is shortened to three months wow usually it's the other way around (laughs) 
we were able to deliver. Our first customer, whose end customer was McDonald's. Okay, our first customer oh, system, oh, okay. uh, Securance by the name, and they were deploying this at McDonald's. Mm. And so we also had a you know, branded customer. So it was a great experience. And that is the advantage of getting a strategic investor. Right. And we were really blessed. So uh, I recommend that everybody must get a combination of strategic investors and uh, angel, uh, angel investors. investors. Yes. I, I feel like I'm, I'm listening to lessons of how to become, how to be a person. Because it's really your personality that attracted all the investors, the advisors who were willing to help, who were able to allow you to tap into all these opportunities and accelerated the process, which we usually don't hear in tech startup. Tech soft stories is usually delays, right? And not enough money and running out of funding, right? And I, I, I hear from your vocabulary, you always talk about being grateful, you're so lucky, you're very honored. I, I really have to commend you. I think it's really your personality that made things happen this Thank week. Thank yeah. you. May I may I comment on that? Yes, yes, sure, sure. Comment is personality plays a significant role. It is not that I'm trying to uh, put a personality forward. Personality is like uh, innate mm. behavior behavior and your thought process and how you think and how you react and how you make decisions. Personality matters in multiple areas. The first thing is investor. Look, mm. I throughout my career, I have built new businesses from ground up many times. But when I did that at the time, I never think, thought about it as a startup because mm. I was at Horizon and maybe half a dozen new business opportunities were created by me and my team from ground up. That means no business, no team, but we assembled people together. We we had an idea. We went to CFO, got the money, mm-hmm. built something, solved a major problem, and we were the first in the world to do some of these things. And we did that over and over again. But the process is very similar of a startup. But it's just that you have a safety net. Okay? Yeah. When you go to startup, which is on the other side of the spectrum in terms of the amount of resources you have, although the process is the same, you go and ask investors for money. And mm-hmm. many times these investors are strangers and they may know you through some mutual connection, right? But so initially, I learned so much from this experience. And although I had a lot of experience, this was a completely different experience. Right. So it's important because I was initially making sure that the presentation was great and we had very accurate projections and all the spreadsheet. I just don't want to put a number there that's deceiving and... I always backed up with some great assumptions and all that. All that is fine. Then my founders, one of them, Professor Mung Chang, he basically said, because he had a he had a lot of experience with many investors, I think that was the third or fourth startup for him. He said, at the end of the day, regarding people, what investors look for is, yeah, idea may be great, but there may be so many ideas, right? But they look for whether... The team that's here, the founders, yeah. are they okay? Will they make it happen? Because there will be, because we paint a rosy picture all the time. We always say positive <laughs> things when we're raising money, right? But yeah. there will always be thorns along the way and unanticipated things. And so it's all about, uh, and sometimes some of the startup people may not have that experience as much as some of the investors have. So investors know, hey, there will be 
within three months, they may pivot or they may run into a glitch. One of the team members may leave or the technology may not work. Or one of the customers says that, hey, I will buy this. And then you build the product and then suddenly they change their mind. So you don't have a customer anymore. These are called near death moments. Yeah. <laughs> so it's yeah. all about number one, is this team passionate? Okay. Mm-hmm. Is there fire in their belly? That's yeah. what number one. Number two, will this team make it happen? Right. Do they know what they're doing? Do they have a good grip on the handle? Okay. And the, the example, I know you're talking about product market fit, right? Because I have been in multiple industries, what I know is that when you're launching a product in different geographies, the regulatory aspects are different. People yeah. make a mistake because you build a product and you want to first launch it in the US and, and then you want to launch it across the world. Okay. For example, Skype, you, you may launch it. I think it, it is a UK company or European company. But take an example of uh, Skype. Uh, it was launched in a particular market. And then the regulations are different. Suddenly, they they painted this picture that they were launching across the world and they started launching and then realizing that different countries had different regulatory. Yeah. So Skype had to, Skype could not launch easily in India, for example, because mm-hmm. India had this requirement that you need to store the data locally. Uh, or, or Skype in India, you can't mix, you can't make a phone call with Skype. Whereas in America, you can. But oh. in India, because the, the government protects their local industry, the local right, telecom. Right, right. They don't want a free service yes. telecoms, things like that. So one of the first things that people need to make sure is that, hey, ha- am I holistic in, in my approach, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, so that's what I think an investor looks for. Are these people, do they know? So if you present to them that, look, we're going to launch this here first, but then we launch it in India. In India, we need to do a few more things for regulatory compliance. See, we already knew that. Yeah. But yeah. people are blindsided by that, right? They suddenly realize that they can't launch. Another example is WhatsApp. I think WhatsApp in some uh, is not allowed or was not allowed in some of the South American com- countries because they needed that. They didn't want the chat data to be stored somewhere in San Francisco. They wanted it stored locally, right? Anyway, so are, are we holistic? No. Yeah. The other aspect is that a cultural aspect. For example, is it Chevy Nova, right? Chevy Nova was such a popular car in the United States. They expanded to Latin America and then they realized it's not, it was not selling. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the term Nova means doesn't move. <laughs> It's a branding issue too. But right? see, but <laughs> yes, these are examples, real life examples of companies that were not holistic or that that took things for granted, right? Right. Course, given that we have more of a globalization today compared to maybe in those days, but so you have to exhibit that what you're doing. Okay. Mm-hmm. That, the third thing is that uh, um, will they sustain? Uh, yeah. How do they deal with near-death moments? Right, mm-hmm. uh, that's another uh, because when we have a team, okay, what are the possible near-death moments that can happen? You have a team, and in startup, each team member has uh, multiple hats. If one of the team members leaves the company because they don't believe in this vision anymore, they don't. You're not going in the right direction, or there's a conflict. That's a potential for the whole company to, to go down the drain. Yeah. Okay? 
Same thing. One of the biggest reasons why startups fail is founders cannot get along with each other. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, and uh, and other reasons are like in our case, what happened was while we were successfully testing it in the lab and in the university, and somebody did a PhD surrounding this, and then everything passed this this technology idea, right? Suddenly, in the real life, there are environments that that were not never anticipated. Okay? Mm-hmm. For example, we built something that can be deployed in Android. Okay. And we used one version of Android. Samsung Galaxy was the most popular. You know, we just used Android and it worked. But when we tried to launch it in India, it's an open market. Uh, in America, it's more of an operator-driven market. So you you only see a Samsung that partners with Verizon mm. okay? or T-Mobile. Whereas in India, they, uh, there is no, uh, the network is not locked. You have, you just go to one shop, just buy a device. You can then pick one of the 16 operators. Or yeah, five. can move free package like in the United States. So what happens is there was so much of opportunity with Android when Android launched that every company and there are, there were maybe 200 different versions of Android phones and brands. So then what happens with Android is you actually, some people customize it because Android is an open source. Yeah. So because of customized, some features were disabled. So when we launched this, in a market like India, suddenly we saw that in some in the tests, some tests failed. We realized that oh no, <laughs> oh, but we were successful. How did we overcome that? We had to go back and we rearchitected certain elements. We we had a technology, but you know what? We had such a great team, and uh, that we actually solved the problem, and we we were able to launch a very mm. generic and modularize that it, it could ride on any Android, okay? So that's an example, right? Another, so we talked about what? Founders, we talked about employees leaving. We talked about this situation. Another situation we had was a customer promised us after the first or two order, a second order that was a big order, okay? Promised us on the phone and, hey, you know what? We are ready to order a thousand more sites, a thousand mm-hmm. more sites. But we need it within three months. Otherwise, it won't work for us. But we want this price. Otherwise, we won't be interested. So we we then negotiated and look, it has to be fair to us. Fair. We, we've seen the deal. And okay. since they wanted this within three months, you know what? We already did the first two iterations with our Vistron, right? So Vistron was like, sure, we will clear the path for you. You do it. So I hung up the phone. I boarded the flight the same afternoon, went all the way to Taiwan, landed mm. in Taiwan just to see that, hey, you know what? That deal is still too high for us. I, I don't think we'll be interested. Okay? So you have a, some customers may do that. And again, business needs, our customer was very friendly to us and very happy. But what, that, that happened because maybe certain... Maybe in their, on their side, their end customer had different cost structure for whatever reason. So that's the near death moment because you have committed and mobilized everybody in the factory and uh, you go all the way. And then if you don't get this order, it will it may actually have impact on maybe our ability to raise money in future because we promise to investors that by this time, we'll have so many sites. Yeah. That's the deal. So how do you deal with that? So you go, uh, so we had to do a rescue operation. So you, we can go on and on. There were several, half a dozen near-death moments. For us. Fortunately, nothing to do with our teams. 
from the team point of view, we were so lucky that until we actually got acquired, all the team members stayed with us. I think we were also not only one of the best teams and highly capable teams, but also great mm -hmm. founders and so supportive. So the investors look for how can you sustain yeah. Yeah. the turbulence and all that. So once one they look at all the presentation, but they have to somehow assess you in other ways and uh, and it's be the very people. It's yeah. the people, right? It's the people the people and yeah. if right people come together it doesn't matter okay it doesn't matter what happens because we'll find a solution yeah and, and we'll we just create a miracle if the right so people come how do you find the best team how do you put together the best team so that's in a startup company i think it's best to tap into people that you already know mm. okay because and especially the people that you've already worked with because what happens is that in a every time a team comes together there is a there is this whole process of forming the team and then there's a storming phase where the cultures are different and there may be different ways of working and there may be disagreements and then you get from starving stage to a norming stage where you start now producing results and you know how to operate well together as a well-oiled machine and then perform, right? Mm -hmm. So forming, norming, performing. And what happens is each stage has its its own time period, right? A time frame, how long it takes, right? And, uh, and uh, if you're in an environment where a mix of new people and existing people, then everybody goes through storming and the leader's role is not only to create the vision, but energize the people and uh, recognize that there is storming that's happening. And how do you get out of the storm mm -hmm. as soon as possible so you can normal perform? But what happens is that in a startup company, if you can accelerate, it's going from zero to 60 in, in what, what uh, Tesla goes from zero to 60 in so many seconds. It's that. You need to go from zero to norming and performing. You literally mm -hmm. have to stage mm. and how do you do that you can only do that if people that you have already worked with yeah right? yeah and you skip them but still i may have worked with this person in one company i may have worked with another com person another company but they both haven't worked together so they'll still be some storming yeah, right yeah. so one thing is that you have to accelerate this so that you quickly perform and and so in the first iteration the core team the founding members the founding employees the so-called I think ha you have to pick them from your own direct network and your direct uh, experience with them. Then you build, and they, they may end up becoming the top, top level, head of this, head of that, chief product person, chief technology person, chief marketing person. And then you build the next level. Now, in the next level, what happened? Each one of them may end up knowing somebody in the, the best in that field, right? And they already formed and stomped. So I think that the network, the power of network is that. And and that's how, but also it doesn't mean that we don't give opportunities for other people. You know, we absolutely also, as we build the layers quickly, in our case, the first layer, we it came from my person, every one of them I worked with in some form or the other. Every one of them was working in a great company. And oh, gosh, 
let's do this together again because they want to experience uh, success again because we succeeded in the past. They have a lot of trust in us. So you know what? Believe it or not, every one of them left a greater opportunity, a more safe opportunity and jumped into this, uh, onto the bandwagon to take the risk along with them. That's the first. In the second round, we actually, because until then, we didn't know what kind of engineers we would need and who would actually be hands-on with it, right? We we were looking for leadership with certain expertise, leadership competencies with certain expertise. So it could be leadership with hardware expertise, leadership with software expertise, or this particular technology expertise, leadership with marketing expertise. But then once we came to know how exactly who the key players we would need, we actually advertised all the cheapest affordable ways, LinkedIn and uh, other means. And uh, we indeed was at the time new. And we would interview people and we actually selected the best of the best. Mm-hmm. When I say best, everybody is great in their own way, but best fit, I would say. for yeah. And that's a very important thing. Because right. one that I was very proud of was we had a team, our first level, my colleagues, okay, my colleagues who were yeah. heading different, they were very particular. We, they were very particular. It was not easy for, they would not just see somebody in this hire. We had to go through not selecting 12, 15, 20 people before we could select. So that's very important. And mm-hmm. many times we also may not have a choice because what happens is it's not like we have an upper hand, right? There are requirements on the other side too. Many people don't want to work for a startup. When work for a startup, they say, hey, how much funding do you have? They also want, they also evaluate us just an investor would do because they are leaving maybe a great opportunity to come here. It's a risk. And in a startup, what happens is salaries are a startup salary package with the upside. With the, So people will have to make some compromises, sacrifices. It is, there's a formula. There's a magic formula where you end up be identifying the right people where on both sides it's acceptable not only the terms yeah. but this journey and so we were so lucky because we got some of the best people in the world and not only great competencies but great leadership capabilities yeah. and great human beings with right. empathy <laughs> consideration patience and ability they will be conflicts but can you resolve it and then, hey, yeah. talk to each other and then move forward, right? Uh, so there are lots of factors. In my, we even hired, I had a an executive coach in the past who also happens to be a psychologist, an expert in that field. So in some of these interviews, we had her step in an interview because we are not just looking for technical competencies. We are looking for intangible. Yeah. And uh, so we had a success formula. I think it worked out so well because nobody left until we got hired, acquired. And uh, yeah, we did have our own share of maybe conflicts and uh, this and that, which is natural, but nothing compared to what may happen in many companies. So we were very, and then even if it happened, we were able to get back on track. And uh, I'm very fortunate. We are all so fortunate. Yeah, I, I I feel you have a very uh, people-centered way of building your company and the network. It's all about people that uh, sometimes I feel like U.S. companies are more, oh, if I don't like it, fire, fire them right away today. <laughs> and that's not your approach. But when you say you hire people you already know, then that's usually your ex-colleagues, friends. <laughs> but some people say don't hire friends because you're going to mess up your relationship. 
what do you have to say about that? Yeah, it is said is key. It is also true. Um, it's hard when you're working for a very big company. There are pros and cons. Mm. When you work for a very big company, uh, and sometimes so you hire friends, and you get into a situation where you you cannot have difficult conversations. Mm. You cannot share your complete opinion because you have your friends outside. In my case, number one was that we all worked together in the past, had successes. But mm. we not only had successes, but we actually had conflicts as well. Mm. We ended up resolving them they may have been in uh, situations where either I was doing something that was not pleasing to some of the people that I have worked with or vice versa. And the good thing is people are always open about it. Mm. So you always knew where people stood and uh, you were always very objective. And just because of somebody, uh, just because somebody was a friend, we would not give any extra advantage, like a, a higher bonus. Just because of that, because these are some of the leadership uh, qualities uh, that I think I was basically a rub off from other great yeah, leaders. Yeah, in the larger companies, right? Yeah, like Dennis Spiegel, very high on integrity. You know, Dennis Spiegel, former CEO of Verizon Wireless, he was also an investor and a board member. It was very mm. fun to work with him. And there are other people like Simon Lin, the chairman of Vistron, David Chen, the CEO of Vistron. Vistron great leaders and what happens is that we must uh, make the right decision for the company and it's, it's a little different if i have my own company like a mom and pop shop and uh, i'm putting my own money i can get whoever i want it's my decision right yeah yeah but when you suddenly use somebody else's money mm-hmm. and and it's different also your mindset is so different when, when i'm at verizon I asked for a project approval and project gets approved. Money comes from CFO. You're getting the money. It is still somebody else's money, but it's just different. The mindset is different. Yeah. Here, the money that you're getting is from some of these angel investors who are putting in maybe 100,000, 200,000, 500,000. Some of these big investors who looked at you and trusted you. Yeah. Mm. You employees, don't need to break that trust or promise. Employees who who basically said no to a lot of greater opportunities or safer opportunities and came here, they trusted you. Suddenly the way you make a decision, is going to be very different. You completely change the way yeah, you make the decision. Yeah, yeah. So what happens is that you, you have to be completely unbiased. Okay? Yes. You have a situation where certain people, you have had a relationship in the past as well, but, but look, this is a new setup. We were successful in this large company or in this another setup, but this is the first time we are in a startup together. It's a new environment. Every time environment changes, you have farming, storming, norming. We learn new things about each other. Right. We, we learn about new weaknesses we have, mm-hmm. new personality, positives and negatives. We may have argument, but it's all about, are we committed? Yeah. Let's not make a small issue, uh, you know, a big, uh, have ego about it and then leave the company. Right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're we're gonna stay until we go. We take everybody to the promised land. I think that is the first commitment we need to have. And then, uh, when we have disagreements, how do we solve it? Mm-hmm. And then, third thing is, how do we? How are we fair? See, because money comes from other people. Yes, believe it or not, I was more worried about safeguarding that investment than my own dollar. We right. never hired an assistant, executive assistant, because that could be initial stages. 
that could save some money. So we all developed and acquired new capabilities, like booking our own tickets. And sometimes we, I used to, people used to work late and I would just go, it doesn't matter. We didn't have titles. Titles were more for the presentation. Yeah. But startup, we never had to, everybody was on the same page. We, mm-hmm. we, we, we have the same environment. And then sometimes the other person goes, sometimes I go, we get coffee, we get pizza. Uh, so I think that we, we develop trust in each other. We are fair to each other. Everybody is compensated in a fair manner, equity in a you know, fair manner. So yeah, it is hard in a startup company. You must get people that you have worked with. Yes, yes. You have to be committed to ensure that you are making the right, you have high integrity. You're making the right decisions. You're fair. It's a combination of both, right? Absolutely, yeah. Otherwise, the chances of failure is very high. Yes. Different environment. Yes, all that is true. Let's not hire somebody. Let friend be a friend so that when you go back and weekend, you can have a, a family dinner together. So that's my... Okay. Yes, it's really great learning from you. I think we can go on for another two hours if we want to. But in the interest of time, in the interest of time, maybe we we can maybe wrap up and maybe just summarize like one important takeaway our audience can learn from you if they were going to start a startup and find product market fit. Great. So the one important important that we must have a holistic Mm. approach and a responsible approach to creating products and delivering in the market. Yeah. Digital mastery. Yeah. So there are are three things here. One is holistic. The other one is responsible. And the Mm. third one is digital mastery. And if you want, I can quickly, holistic means that you have this checklist. Remember I talked about Hey, you have a name. I'm passionate about this name, but then does that name mean something? One of the phones, Nokia Lumina, right? One of those phones. Actually, the word had a, has a bad meaning in another oh, language. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Very foul meaning, right? So like that, we need to be holistic. We need to have a checklist of what are the things that can go wrong in a different market. You don't think that one uh, size fits all. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think we have to be very cautious about that. We need to mitigate risk. There are not only regulatory aspects and cultural aspects, like language, for example, Facebook launched in, in America in English, and maybe in Europe in English, but in India, there are hundred and some so many languages that they actually translated their Facebook in local language. So you have a local translation in so many languages in Facebook. You have to think about that, right? Yes. Languages are language. Many people speak right. English, many people don't. And so that's one answer, holistic about desirable, feasible, and for that particular market, the culture aspect. Second yeah. is responsible. Responsible would be, first of all, don't be careless. Mm-hmm. People make some decisions and you cannot be careless because you're dealing with lives of employees. Because if you're yeah. careless, you're letting them down. Investors, right? And other people, you're letting everybody down. Don't be careless. Be responsible. Be uh, and responsibility also is comes in other ways. For example, when I was briefly for a couple of years, I was helping a VC help them evaluate companies for potential investment. There were lots of startups. Many startups they're excited about their idea. They want to go here. They want to go. Then my there were always two questions I would ask them among other questions. Hey, have you? How are you going to take care of cybersecurity? That's one question. Then another question was, what have you thought, if it's launching globally, have you looked into the regulatory? Mm. 
And to my surprise, I'll just take a sip. Most of them did not take care of these two because these are afterthoughts. Mm. Not being holistic. I'm not trying to say, I, I, I don't want to say anybody did a bad job. What I mean is that it also comes through experience, right? If you just have somebody who graduated from college or did graduate, but did a startup, they don't have this visibility or experience. Yeah. Okay. And then you are focused on building this product and people can use it and it's exciting. And then you run into a situation where, you know, somebody hacks into this. How come mm. you didn't think of it? Right. Or, sorry, India says we can't launch it. We don't support this. Things I like see. that. So responsible. But, but responsible extends to other things like sustainability, green. Now, one of the biggest problems we have today is called Internet of Trash. IoT okay. is not Internet of Things, but it's Internet <laughs> of Trash. Right. There's so many devices coming in. People all over the world just building, building, and they're thinking that it's somebody else's problem. They build something that is not environment friendly they built something which has a lifespan of one to two years and then what do you do you just throw it away they're not using materials that are sustainable yeah so you should be responsible build something that is that the future uh, palatable to the future generation that will keep our future generation so responsibility okay Uh, digital is a third aspect which means that uh, it doesn't matter in which startup field right you can do something in healthcare or you can do in technology or in agribusiness right or education these are different industries, but today, in today's world, everybody can do greater things with technology. Yeah. In that, right. so then, so everybody needs to have a good grip again on what are the emerging technologies? What is AI? What is IoT? What is five G? I think that if you are a technologist, it, it's all natural to you. But yeah. if you are an English major, if you are a sports engineering person, or if you are a physics or mm-hmm. biology major. Uh, they may not be as well-versed with technology, uh, but I'm no, encouraging no. everybody, you must be well-versed with, with You try to take some classes or you take a minor because once you graduate, you go to this new world or you're creating a startup, you must have uh, some knowledge of technology so you know how to use it. In so digital okay. mastery has two aspects. One is a great understanding of technology, but digital mastery also comes with the second aspect, which is leadership. Mm. Okay? which is that it's not good enough for you to be smart and for you to hire all the smart people. Can you create a vision, take this technology and actually solve a problem, create a vision for this and energize the people to support you and secure trust from investors and other people to invest in you. And now that's that's just the first part, but execute flawlessly. Yeah. Yes. How do you execute flawlessly? Then you deal with problems that come along the way and you, you support your team. You're there when they need you. So yeah. that's digital. So a holistic and responsible approach to product and market development through digital mastery. Okay, that's going to be the tagline. <laughs> All right. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Yes. And uh, I, I learned a lot today from you. Um, you're, I think you're very special in, in the way you approach uh Start startup and uh, product market then. Okay, thank you so much, uh, Koshik, and uh, yeah, I'll we'll talk again. Okay. Thank you. Thank yes, you. there's so much to talk that uh, I look forward to part two. <laughs> Another okay. Day. Okay. <laughs>